This is the Justice Fighter Podcast. Justice Fighter Podcast. With Attorney Gerald Griggs. Attorney G. Well, we have conversations on social justice, civil rights, and political news that affects us all. Let Attorney Griggs put you on game. Only on the Justice Fighter Podcast, y'all. What's going on, y'all? It's Attorney Gerald Griggs on the Justice Fighter Podcast. And I am so excited to have our next guest. Um, she's been on the front lines, uh, you know, ever since, unfortunately, um, her nephew was killed in Brunswick, Georgia. I want to introduce you to Thea Wanza Brooks. She is a frontline activist, and she's also the aunt of Ahmaud Arbery. Please say hello to the people, Thea. Hello, everyone. want to say thank you, uh, Mr. Griggs, for having me on your podcast today. I appreciate you. So how is the weather down there in Brunswick? Everything is good. Today was actually nice. We had the 70s, so it was nice. Um, we had some cool days, but for the most part, weather's good. So let's hop right into it. You know, um, today is Thursday, which means last week, yesterday, um, we had a, a bittersweet but joyous occasion when we heard that Travis McMichael and Gregory McMichael and William Roddy Bryant were convicted uh, of the unlawful killing and murder of your, your, your nephew. Tell us how we got to that moment. Oh, my goodness. Well, it all started back, of course, um, February 2020 when Ahmad was killed. Um, once he was killed on February the 23rd, the 24th, I went out to Satilla Shores to do some private investigation of my own because the story that we were given just didn't add up to me. Because if you knew Ahmad personally, you knew that, that what they told us in the beginning was not his character, and which they told us in the beginning that Ahmad was involved in a burglary um, inside of a home. And there was a tussle over a firearm and a mop was killed. So I went out to the neighborhood, which I had never been to. Um, I went to this house that was under construction, no walls, no windows, just pretty much a shell. And then I went down to where Ahmad died, on the that scene where he died. And it just didn't add up to me because of where the distance between the home and where he died. If he would have been shot inside this home, then he would have at least probably collapsed in the front yard or inside the home, but he would not have made it down to Holmes Road in Burford where he was killed. So how did you get word um, that Ahmad was shot? Um, I was at work the Monday morning following his uh, murder. I had walked in um, to a conversation that was being uh, discussed by some co-workers of mine, and they were asking me had I heard about the young man who was killed the night before in the neighborhood um, where their robbery had taken place. And I was unaware of what they were talking about at the moment. And about 15 minutes later, um, after the conversation was over, my niece called me, and um, she asked me had I heard anything about Quiz, because that's what we knew him as. And um, she said that he had been killed. And so I was uneasy, and I was like, no, I don't think that's right. Um, I just spent time with him like the last few weeks. I'm like, no, so that that's not right. So I was like, let me call his mom. So uh, I called his mom and um, I said, Wanda, I just got some information and I'm not sure um, if I was given the right information. So I'm calling you because I need to know if something going on with Quez. And she said to me, if you heard that Quez was killed, that information is correct. And so my words to her were, do you believe what they're saying? Because she told me that they told her that Officer Larry told her that he had been involved, of course, in a burglary and he was a tussle of a gun and he was killed. And I asked her, I said, do you believe this information that they gave you is true? And her exact words to me, she said, at this moment, because everything's so fresh, I'm not sure what to believe. All I know is I'm going to let the police do their job. Okay. And so, when I hung up from her, yeah. I was very uneasy. I just didn't like the fact that I felt like nobody was going to do anything. <laughs> and of course, so so hearing that and having that uneasy, uneasy feeling, you knew that you had to do something because it, it just didn't feel right. It didn't sound right to you, right? Right. Okay. 
Okay. And so you went out to Centilla Shores, you did your own investigation, and, and then what happened? After I did my own investigation, um, looking around, the, the vibe in the neighborhood was very intensifying. Um, when I pulled into the neighborhood, you know, people came out and they were looking because I was, of course, parked at this house under construction and everybody kind of was uneasy. But I was just looking around and then, like I said, I went down to the scene where my had died. And it just, something wasn't right to me. And then that very day, an article came out in the paper that was written. And it just, the pieces to the puzzle just wasn't adding up. And so um, I began to just sit back. And then like the next day, another article came out. So like for an entire week, there was an article written every day about this, this, this incident in Satilla Shores. And I took all those articles. And I collected them and I printed out pictures of them on. I just started making packets. I sat down and I made packets and I just tried to write to anybody that had a big platform that I felt like would listen and help me understand because something wasn't right. And so in doing that, um, what happened after you, you put the packets together and you, you reached out to people with bigger platforms? Because you just, you know, what was coming out in, uh, I believe that's the Brunswick News. It just didn't make sense to you, right? Right, that's correct. Okay. So um, after that, um, there was a lady. Um, she was over the news. I want to say it was like um, in Savannah. And she called me back after receiving an email and then the packet, my information. She just was like trying to help me understand because she wanted to look into the story. And actually, of course, as journalists, they're always looking for a story and something to write about. So then not long, um, I received a call from Pastor James Woodall, the former NAACP president. He had stated to me that he had received the packet. He received everything that I had put in there and that he promised to help any way he could to try to get answers and what was going on down here in Brooklyn. And so after speaking to President Woodall with the Georgia State Conference, um, what happened after that? Um, after that, um, things kind of just, um, just rested. You know, we still, we started um, uh, with this group. At the time, there was an organization called the 223 Foundation. Mm-hmm which is no longer um, an organization, but um, they have what we call, I mean, days of action. So on days of action, we would call, like, to the police department. And then there was a day of action where we would write an email. And then there was another day of action. So every day there was a different day of action of something to do in order to press for answers and press to, um, to get answers and get more information about what was going on and what had happened that day. Things we still weren't getting the answers that we were needing. Mm-hmm. We asked questions. We went to the police department. Um, they just gave us pretty much the runaround. So then his mom, she started going to the police department. The dad had a, a, a sit-in with the DA at the time, Jesse Johnson. Um, she had fabricated some lies. And so we were just pretty much from that point, just getting the runaround until May 5th. And so May 5th, what, what happened? Was there a break in the case? Um, did, did something change? Because it, it just felt like, you know, from, from the outside world that nothing was happening, and then all of a sudden something big happened. What happened with that energy? How did May 5th happen? So on May 5th, um, I was at work, and I received a call from one of my cousins asking me had I been on Facebook. And um, I told him no. And he was like, well, whatever you're doing, just stop right now because it's all over Facebook. So as soon as you log in, you'll see it. So I'm like, well, what is it? He's like, just log in. So I log into Facebook while I'm at work. And um, there's this thing about, oh, my God. Everybody's saying, like, oh, my God, did you see the video? And I'm like, what are they talking about? So then there's this guy here. He's our news uh, anchor, uh, Scott Rifen. He has this long 
very drawn out post. And at the end of the post, it says graphic uh, information. Please be advised. So I click on it and it's a video and the video starts playing. And so in about five or 10 seconds into the video, I see a mark going around a curve. And I'm like, what is this? Like that? No idea what I was watching. <laughs> um, and then moments later, I see him tussling over this gun with this guy and then he's fatally shot and he falls into the street. Goes without saying that it was tough watching that, but what, what was going through your mind when you saw that? Well, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, well, there's, he's just running. That's what he does every day. And then there's this truck after he goes around the curve and there's a man on the back of it. And what is he doing? Then I see, then I see this guy and then I see this other guy on the side with a shotgun and I'm like, oh my God, what? Where is he going? Why? I've been thinking to myself, why is he going to this? And where, where is he running to? What's, what's going on? Um, I was clueless. Like, why is he going that way? And these people have guns. And then I see him venture to the left and then he goes back to the right. I said, okay, he's trying to run away. And so after he was shot and he fell to the ground, like right then I knew that all along that my theory about him not doing anything wrong, that it wasn't his character, that whatever they were saying that he did on that day, that he didn't do had come to pass. So immediately after work, I had my mom pick up my kids and I went to Satilla Shores with my cousin Kevin Smith and Rico Collins. When we got there, it was like us and a couple other people. So then I was like, listen, we can't just stand out here on the outside of this neighborhood. We gotta go in here. Like this is breaking the case. They need to know that we're out here and that they won't get away with this. So we all got on Facebook, we went live. And in a matter of minutes, there were people that had saw this video, that had watched our lives, and they showed up. We had cars everywhere. And from that day forward, that was our first protest into the neighborhood. We stood in the front of Ben Michael's house. We demanded that they turn themselves in. We marched down to the scene where Ma was killed. We prayed. We left balloons and monumental things down there, um, whatever anybody bought to commemorate the area where he laid to rest. And then after that, like, my advocating and activism just kicked in. And I knew that we had to stay on top of it yes, because sir. all along I knew I was right. Yeah, you were definitely right. And um, I remember seeing that that live stream because it, it, it went viral uh, because everybody had seen the video. And, and it was just it was it was phenomenal to see that many people come together. Uh, but did something happen after that initial that march in the community that kind of brought everybody else from around the state uh, together? Did something else happen? So after May 5th, um, I planned a protest uh, slash rally. I planned a rally and a birthday commemoration, which was on May 8th um, for Ahmad. And I had planned it um, after the video came out on the 5th. I planned this rally for the 8th. And then on May 7th, the GBIs made the arrest for Ahmad. And then on May 8th, we had this big rally that I had put together and people came from all over. You were there. Um, there were others from Atlanta. They came from Florida. Um, some flew in from all over the world. It was just like a day of unity where everybody came together on one platform at the courthouse ground to let their voices be heard about the injustice that happened on February the 23rd. Yeah, it was a powerful day. And so from, from that day until um, the actual trial, um, how many different protests, uh, different actions would you say happened 
over the course of the time that you were you were activated to to organize uh, for uh, for for Ahmad? Oh my goodness! There was like after that first initial rally, there was like a rally every weekend after that. If I didn't do it, someone else like in the community had something, or there was something that occurred. There was a um, a rally in Atlanta that we rode to Atlanta for that was at a park down there. Um, there was just so much going on. So if I wasn't having the rally, I was being a part of it in his memory. So I want to say between traveling um, to Atlanta, there was another place, a couple places we went in here. I know altogether it was probably like between 30 to 40 um, just in total of the travel and then the ones that I organized here in Brunswick. And so with that activist energy, you know, we're not talking about the trial yet, but what happened in Georgia based on this activist energy um, that we felt from Brunswick? Well, in Georgia alone, we were unable, we were able, I'm sorry, we were able as we strategized um, during the course of that year when Ahmad was killed, there was an election coming up. And our DA at the time, which was Jackie Johnson, who had um, inserted herself into the case instead of at first um, recusing herself and then sending it up to be uh, assigned to someone else. She inserted herself by having the defendants not arrested on that day and also by calling another district attorney and turning a case over to him and talking to him and having him talk to people instead of just following her chain of command. So with all of that, it was time for voting. So we got out here with petitions because there was no one um, on the ballot to run against her. So we had to work and work and strategize. So we went door to door. We set up days. We um, got the petition signed with the signatures, got those um, sent to Mr. Higgins, who got them up to the Capitol where they needed to go to get him on the ballot. Um, once he was on the ballot, people came out in Glen County and we unseated a district attorney. That was something that was unheard of. That was one of the first times that we'd ever seen a, a write-in candidate unseat a, a district attorney. Is that right? Right. That's correct. The very first time. Yes, sir. And then there was movement at the Gold Dome. Tell us about what happened at the Gold Dome as a response uh, to the uh, activism. There was... Um, I know that there was a um, there was a citizen's arrest was abolished um, because that was what the um, McMichael stated that they were trying to do with the mod. And that was to um, make a citizen's arrest um, because they felt like he had burglarized the um, house that was under construction. So there was a sign off where the citizen's arrest was abolished. And then Georgia has never had a hate crime, um, which we should have had so many years, but we never had a hate crime. But then there was a hate crime implemented in Georgia. There was also the uh, indictments of the McMichaels and William Roddy Bryant, both on the state level and then the federal level. level. Right. Right. So they had the indictments right on state and then the indictments on federal, which will be handled um, February 2022 is when they'll go to court for the charges on the hate crimes um, that they received in the killing of Ahmad. So that happens in February. Yeah. 
And so let's kind of talk about the trial. Um, so you did something that was real profound right before the trial, about like two weeks before the trial, because, you know, some people didn't know the trial was coming. So why was it important to convene a, a protest rally, you know, two weeks before the trial actually started? It was important because I think that um, for a little while in there, um, people kind of took their eyes off of what had happened. Um, and we still knew about it, but it wasn't being pushed as much. People in the community kind of got lax. Um, um, and this when you're not keeping things going or not as engaged, um, you lose sight of what's going on. And so I felt like it was time for everybody to get back in focus to get all eyes on the case, to pay attention to the case and what was going on. So then I organized a rally. Um, well, a couple weeks before that, I organized a uh, press conference for um, families who had been um, under the hands of Jackie Johnson, who has loved ones like Kelsey Rayner and so many others who were up under her and did not receive justice for the injustice that they were faced with. And so we had a press conference with about seven families and they talked to the media in reference to Jackie Johnson's misdeed. Mm -hmm. Then after that, um, on that Saturday before the um, jury selection, we had a rally at the courthouse. And then that Sunday we had a prayer and praise unity day to set the atmosphere to pray over the ground so that things would feel a little bit easier on October the 18th when we entered into the courthouse for jury selection. Exactly. And so once um, once jury selection uh, happened, uh, b because of the renewed energy around this case, did, did others come uh, from other places and, and, and make sure that they were present during the course of this trial? Right. Um, we had different organizations, um, the TJC, Transformers Justice Coalition, um, and then there was um, another organization, and then I believe just Georgia, um, Georgia Now. There were so many, I can't even, but they had organized, like, um, activities day-to-day -day, um, where they would sit outside on the ground and, and pay attention and they would have um, podcasts, um, uh, panels at night over on Jekyll Island. There were panels that were set up, and they would go over on the panels, and they would talk and just have these different different actions going on every day um, during jury selection to keep everybody, as I said, engaged in what was happening and what was going on. Okay. And so uh, because of that activism, you know, the eyes continually stayed on um, Ahmad's case as we moved to jury selection. But there were some curious things that happened during jury selection um, that, you know, a lot of people know about, but you got to witness it. What what happened during jury selection with regard to, you know, the picking of the actual jury? Well, of course, um, there were like 600 people who were bought in for jury selection. The main number to get to at that moment was 64 once we got to 64, um, they had their peremptory strikes that they could use to strike off um, before um, the uh, prosecutors had the opportunity, the defendants 
uh, counsel were able to strike off user strikes to get rid of members of the jury that they didn't want to be on the jury. So immediately they struck all the African-American jurors except one. And so that left us with 11 white jurors and one black juror. And, and being someone that lives in uh, Brunswick, lives in Glen County, was that representative of the community in Glen County? Uh, all white jurors except for one black. Is that representative of the actual community in Glen County? Right. That's um, for the county perspective. Um, there are more white because of how our community is divided up. Um, we have the Brunswick and then we have the county and then we have the sheriff's department. So we have three different jurisdictions. And so in Glen County, on the county side, um, there are more whites than black. But when you come into the city, the lower, I guess you would say, poverty areas, there are more blacks. So if you were just picking from the county side, yes, there are more whites on the county side than blacks. But you would you would agree with me that there are more than just, you know, maybe one percent of the black people that live in Glen County is more like thirty percent, right? Right. There's there's um the actual number, yes, is twenty eight percent um in the county. So yes, we could have gotten at least half of those jurors to be black if they um weren't just there to strike it out, only down to one just to make us feel like they weren't striking them out because they were black, they left one. Let's jump into the meat of this trial. You know, the trial, you know, jury selection lasted about four weeks. The trial lasted about a week and a half. Um, what what was your, your feeling um, listening to that the testimony and, and the comments that were being made during the course of that trial? Well, I always try to have an open mind about everything. Um, I'm aware that when attorneys are representing their clients, that they're going to do whatever it takes, no matter how guilty the person is, to try to make their client look innocent. So I try to go into it with open mind. But there was just some things that I couldn't wrap my head around. Um, like there was many motions filed in reference to leaders in the African-American community who have been in this fight for justice probably longer than I've been born. Um, people like Al Sharpton, people like Jesse Jackson, um, and so many more who have been in this fight. Um, Ahmad's case is not the first case where we see or have seen these gentlemen appear. They've appeared in the George Floyd case. They appeared in so many other um, cases when families were going through these injustices. And so there were comments made about the makeup of the gallery, um, who was sitting in the gallery, as if it was a they were trying to make it a distraction for the jury versus the jury even noticing or seeing it as a distraction. And then there were comments made about how many pastors can one family have. So if Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson is the pastor this week, then who will be next week? Raphael Warnock. Um, then it came down from that to no more black pastors in the courtroom. Then there was a Colonel Sanders joke. And then there was this laugh on the very last day that got me about Ahmad uh, running through a neighborhood in a white shirt, khaki shorts, and uh, no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails. So much emotion. Um, it was just so distasteful, um, degrading. It was hard. It was very, very heartbreaking to know that even in the defense, you will go as low as to discuss and degrade someone because you don't know what his living situation was. But to say those kind of things and to get us to the point of now we have thousands of black people who showed up um, and then you file a motion to try to have the case mistrial. I, it was just so, over that week, it was so many emotions. So many emotions, Greg. So many. Yeah, I understand. And so ultimately um, we got to the closing after the defense put up what I would term as a very weak defense and after you know 
Travis McMichael got up there and testified for two days and right. destroyed his own defense. Um, we, we were there for the um, the reading of the verdict. We were actually in the overflow room uh, reading of the verdict. It kind of take people back to what that experience was like and what the range of emotion was for that. Well, it was first uh, very intensifying. The jury convened back around 1.30 from lunch with the verdict. So at that moment, we're all just kind of on edge. Um, there was a point of where... Um, we kind of all just, some of us just kind of start hugging and sitting close. Uh, we were anxious, nervous. And then when the first charge was read, um, there was an emotion of, I was happy and overjoyed at the same time, but so overjoyed till it brought me to tears just because like the hard work was paying off. Um, and then as they kept reading, um, I don't know, and everybody that was watching saw his dad, he got excited mm-hmm. in the courtroom to where he had to be taken out into the hallway. Um, but it was in that room with us, um, I remember us praying together um, as Mr. Sharpton prayed outside. I remember you leading us to pray inside and we prayed and we just kind of bonded as the family that we had been over these last 20 months, all of us. And we cried and, and we were happy and we changed clothes, I did, and my sisters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it was in a moment, but I knew and I felt all along that they had no case and that justice would be served. And it was like a sense of relief because now with us going right into Thanksgiving the very next day, we were already thankful, but we had so much more to be thankful for. And that is that God answered the prayer and that the work that everybody did, not just me, it paid off. And they, we got the justice that Ahmad deserved. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I've liked about this as much as you can in a very difficult situation is that um, a lot of black America has, has come together around your nephew's case and having the verdict come the day before Thanksgiving. You know, African-Americans around the country had something to be thankful for that justice was served. Um, you know, a lot of people are talking about it's not justice, you know, but it is justice. Now, of course, we would love to have Ahmad back. Uh, but right. it was justice, and we are thankful to your family for allowing us to be there as the comfort and, and to continue this push. But kind of tell the audience what you've been doing because of this for other families. Well, I always tell people, you never know. Some of us never know our purpose in life. And to be honest with the audience, I always knew I had a purpose, but I never knew my purpose. So my energy every day before Ahmad was killed was to get up, go to work, and take care of my children. And when Ahmad was killed, there was a switch of activation that set on. And that's when the work of activism began. So then I began to figure out my purpose, and I began to walk in it. And my purpose is not only to run and get justice for Ahmad, but my purpose is to help other families who have been faced with injustices who have uh, family members who are now voiceless because they're no longer here. And there's now someone like myself who can advocate and get out here and work. So we've been working with other families who have reached out to us during this situation of mob because they saw our activism, because they saw how we pushed, because they saw the fight and us not giving up, have reached out to us for help. And so now we found ourselves traveling to other cities to help others advocate for their loved ones to help them fight for justice and pray that they get justice for their loved ones, just like we got here in Glen County for a And That's awesome. And, um, you know, a lot of my listeners are activists and, and are um, freedom fighters in their own right. 
but how can they help support your actions and help support the families uh, that are still going through it? And how can they support, you know, with the ongoing push for justice uh, for Ahmad, as we do know, we have the federal cases coming? Um, right now, as far as helping um, in all aspects um, of Ahmad, of course, um, I tell anybody who wants to give anything to for and with Ahmad's name attached to it um, because of it being his name and because of representation um, to put whatever you want to donate to Ahmad for things that are going to go forth in the community for um, anything that will represent Ahmad. I'd say donate that money into the foundation um, that was opened up to uh, help others in situations like this um, by his mother, which is a great foundation. Um, it's the AhmadArborsFoundation.org, I believe in. There are a lot of different things you can see on there um, where they're doing things as well. As far as the activism work that we're doing to go and help others in different areas, um, there isn't anything quite set up in stone yet to where you can send donations. Um, we are going to set up some um, set up a cash app and Venmo and stuff because it'll be able to help us with travel because we are new to this. And so it's going to require us to travel. Some nights we're going to have to stay. Um, and we're working on a platform where you can send donations if you want to help. I do have a Facebook page, and it's my first and last name, Theowanza Brooks. And it says uh, activist Theowanza Brooks. So you can go there and follow for any updates, um, places that we're traveling to go and um, assist other families. Um, I'll try to I'll keep that page updated so you'll know. And as I said, I'll put other information on there at a later date if you guys want to donate and help us to continue to be able to go and help others fight. Well, we thoroughly appreciate all the work that you were doing and uh, just want to open the floor for, for any final thoughts before we conclude. I just want to tell everybody who's listening that this is our time. This is our time to get back what's been taken from us, our voice, our freedom that we really don't have. Like if any other time was any better, it's right now. Right now is the time to fight. Right now is the time to demand what we want. We've asked for a lot for 400 plus years. Now we're in a place because now people are starting to see the things that we face every day as African-Americans. And they're coming on board to assist and try to help us get these things reversed so that we are able to live and walk the streets and not be intimidated or afraid because we may be in the wrong neighborhood or we may have accidentally turned down this road because we got lost. Um, any amount of things. So right now is the time. Stay in the fight get in the fight. The best chief to get that fighting information from is none other than he's Gerald Griggs. I've learned so much from him. He's been an inspiration. I've watched him. He's supported me. And I'm sure if any of the others reach out, he'll support you too. Um, he's not just a man of words. He's a man of action. And he's been a big inspiration and help to me during this journey. But right now, it's just time, y'all. Let's unify, get together as activists, and let's make this movement bigger than ever, and let's just fight 
and get what we need. Well, I appreciate that. And you heard it from her, folks. It's time for us to get active. It's time. It's our time. You know, I always say this, you know, I was blessed to have such great mentors. But the thing that my mentors always told me was to make sure that you activate everyone else because it's about justice, freedom, and accountability in this movement. And so, Thea, Thea, I just want to thank you for the work that you are doing, allowing us to be a part of it, allowing us to continue this battle. And you always will know my platform is open. And you also know whenever you call, I will be there. Uh, So I just appreciate you. Thank you for coming on Justice Fighter Podcast. And for all of those that are listening uh, around the world, make sure you follow her, Activist Theowanza Brooks, on Facebook. uh, And I'm sure she'll get all the other platforms up. If you want to know what's going on in southeast Georgia, she's the person to talk to. And we're going to keep on fighting. We're going to keep on running. We're going to make sure we get federal um, the federal conviction uh, in Ahmad's case, but we're also going to get justice in Kelsey Rayner's case, uh, in Pernell Harris's case, in Carolyn Small's case. These are names that you need to know. Of course, Kendrick Johnson, so many cases down in Southeast Georgia. So y'all need to stay tuned in. This is the Justice Fighter podcast. I'm the Justice Fighter, and I'll see you on the next pod. This is the Justice Fighter Podcast. Justice Fighter Podcast. With Attorney Gerald Griggs. Where we have conversations on social justice, civil rights, and political news that affects us all. Let Attorney Griggs put you on game. Only on the Justice Fighter Podcast, y'all.